0: Illinois, uh, actually much larger church than what we are, and uh, he was excited to get to be here with you. Uh, he said he's had so much fun uh, getting to be here and uh, and be with you all again. So thank you for your uh, your warm welcome to him. Uh, today is kind of a special day to me. 16 years ago today, uh, Karen and I arrived in. Uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a rider truck pulling a uh, a trailer with a car on it, and uh, both sets of parents. And uh, Sarah was an infant at the time, and Karen was pregnant with Ashley. And uh, we started our pastoral ministry career together 16 years ago today. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, you know, we added a couple more kids, and uh Change states and uh, change roles and all of that. But uh, we're excited that uh, God has been faithful to us and we have been able to still keep doing this because it's a lot of fun. Uh, So I want to thank you for that. Um, um, Thank you for that. It really is a privilege to serve as a pastor and to be your pastor uh, most of all. So Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You. Uh, We thank You for the magnificent privilege that it is to uh, gather together as Your people and to be called by Your name and to be called Your sons and Your daughters and to know that uh, You have done everything that is possible, as well as everything necessary, to bring us into not just uh, a a new life in the here and now, but a new life for eternity. Uh, As we we obey and as we follow Christ, uh, Father, you are bringing us closer and closer day by day in relationship with you until the day when we see you face to face. And Father, we, uh, we ask that you would be with us here by your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into your word and help us to understand it and then to apply it and obey it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since I was in Romans with you. So uh, let me recap where we've been. Uh, in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, you hear about the power of, of the gospel to save all kinds of people and the desperate need that wicked Gentiles have of salvation. Uh, In chapter 2, you learn that religious Jews need salvation too, uh, though they sin differently than the Gentiles did. Uh, In chapter 3 through 5, Paul tells us how salvation comes not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ alone, that we have peace with God, we are declared righteous in God's sight, uh, and we're forgiven of all of our sins. And in chapter 6 through 8, we learn how the gospel empowers the Christian life of holiness and obedience to Christ as we live by the Spirit. And we're looking forward to, the, to glory in the presence of Christ and to final redemption. And in chapters 9 through 11, we are taught about the faithfulness of God to keep covenant uh, to his people. And so he is saving a remnant of the Jews even now while the full measure of the Gentiles are being saved and added to God's people. Uh, But that there is a day coming as well when God will uh, bring salvation to Israel, when huge numbers of Jews uh, will be grafted back into God's people as they embrace faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we've seen that God is doing all of these incredible things to bring glory to himself as the savior of all kinds of sinners and the judge of all those who do not repent. So God is, is, is going to glorify himself in both salvation and in judgment. Uh, salvation of those who turn to him in faith and judgment of those who reject Christ. Uh, and that's where we, so that's where we've been so far. We've gone through 11 chapters of this book, and there haven't been actually very many imperatives. I think there's only about four in 11 chapters imperative verbs that get used uh, because Paul is not concerned that much in those 11 chapters about telling us what to do. He's telling us what God has done for 11 chapters. And he is trying to help us to understand what the gospel is and what all of its implications are for us and how the gospel carries us from a point of being sinners to being sanctified all the way to glory. And he's trying to help us to understand and lay the foundation of the gospel as the gospel is not just the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel gives the power for the continuing of the Christian life and, and also gives us the promise and the certainty and the hope of our eternity as eternal life, right? And so the gospel is something that carries us from death to life all the way to glory, all the way. And God is bringing us all the way home. So we, we don't need to work our way into it We don't need to uh, do a lot of good deeds to make sure that we come into it. Uh, We believe in Christ, and then Christ, by His Holy Spirit, saves us and carries us all the way to the Father. And so, with all of that in mind, with all of that as a foundation, now in chapter 12, He's going to give us some imperatives. In fact, He's going to give us a bunch. Things to do... As a result of what God has done. In light of all that God has done to us and for us. Now how do we live in a practical way as followers of Jesus Christ? That's what chapter 12 starts. So you've had 11 chapters where he's not telling you to do very much. And then you're about to get three chapters where you've got a lot to do. uh, In response to um, what God has done. So. I want to um, read here again, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now this verse gives us two important things. Number 1, it tells us to do something, and number 2, it gives us the motivation or the why that we should do it. And I want to look at our motivation first because it's given to us in the text first. And what we see as you look at the text is that Paul is going to give us a reason. And that's why he uses the word therefore. You know, as I've said before, Many times, whenever you see in your Bible the word, therefore, you need to see and find out what it's there for, right? You need to figure out why it's there, because it's always there to give a conclusion or a reason based on what has been said previous to this verse. So whenever you see the word, therefore, you ought to have your antenna go up and go, based on what is he making this conclusion? And the therefore is the motivation for how we should live our lives. And our motivation for action is by the mercies of God. That's how the ESV reads, by the mercies of God. If you have an NIV, it reads, in view or in light of God's mercy. In other words, our motivation for the action Paul wants us to take is all that God has done for us. It's all of the manifold blessings that God has bestowed on us in Christ, in the gospel that he has been describing and explaining for the previous 11 chapters. When he says, by the mercies of God, he's saying, by the stuff I've just been telling you about for 11 chapters, in light of the fact that God has in his merciful grace saved us though we were sinners in light of the fact that he has predestined us and called us and justified us and is declaring us righteous in his sight. It's in light of the fact that he is working all together all things for our good. It is in light of the fact that he is sanctifying us by his spirit. It's in light of the fact that He will glorify us and make us new and give us new bodies and we will stand literally in the presence of the living God. It's because God is making us part of His people together with people from all nations and all languages and all times around the entire world. God is putting together one people for Himself from both Jews and Gentiles. It's in light of the fact that nothing, not nakedness or famine or sword or death or life or angels or demons or things present or things to come or tribulation or persecution or danger, and that in fact nothing in all creation will be able to separate you and me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in light of all of these things. It's in light of the manifold blessing and mercy of god that he's about to give us instruction on something to do as a result that's our motivation the marvelous merciful love and grace of god which has been displayed to us in ways that we cannot even fully comprehend He appeals to us on that basis for what he wants us to do. And ESV here reads, and look how he, he, he addresses us. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, don't get hung up on that if you're a woman. Sisters is implied by the Greek uh, language there. It's a family term. It's a family term. And that hints at one more of the mercies of God that He has given to us. Because guess what? We're brothers and sisters in whose family? In God's family. And the reason He addresses us as brothers is because that's what we are. We're brothers and sisters to who? Jesus, We're brothers and sisters to Jesus. And God is our father. And Jesus is our elder brother. And we are brothers and sisters in God's family. And it's in light of all these things that God has done. That give us our motivation to do what God calls us to do. And what is it that he calls us to do? Look at the text. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, a few things to notice here uh, in the text. The kind of sacrifice that God calls us to make here in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, is total. It's total. Total. When he says, sacrifice your bodies, don't misunderstand. God is not after merely our flesh and skin and blood and bone. He is calling us to offer everything that we are up to him. The totality of our person, including our minds and our spirits. And so, we are not called to give God what is left over in our lives. We are not called to give God the remainders and the edges and the margins. We are called to give Him all of ourselves. All of ourselves. We are not called by God to salvation that we might offer Him 10% of our lives or 30% or 75% or 90%. We're called to give all that we are to Him. To be totally committed to following Christ. Why? Because God has demonstrated already that he is totally committed to saving us and in response to his mercy we ought to be totally committed to following him amen does that make sense I hope so look at how else the sacrifice is described it is living it is holy it is acceptable It is spiritual worship. Uh, And it's important, by the way, that Paul tells us he wants us to be living sacrifices, right? Because uh, he's writing to a group of people in the ancient world who were very familiar with the concept of making a sacrifice, right? You go get your bull, you get your goat, you get your pigeon, whatever you're going to do. And you kill that thing. And you burn it up on an altar as a sacrifice to the God that you worship. So if that word living sacrifices were not there. What will we be left to conclude? I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present yourselves as a sacrifice. God is calling me to commit suicide. Really? No. It's a living sacrifice. In other words, it's as you are living your life that you recognize that your life is not yours. That it belongs in total to God. And you offer your life as a sacrifice to Him and you live your life as a person who is called by God to salvation as a sacrifice to Him. And, and treat your life as if it is not yours and belongs to Him. And as you do that, as you do that, then you are making a sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God and is an act of worship. It means that you stop looking out for your own interests and making sure that as many of life's marbles run your way as you can make them and that you instead hand your life over to God and say to him do with me whatever you want do with me whatever you want my life is yours My body is yours. My mind is yours. My spirit is yours. My finances are yours. My house is yours. My children are yours. My family is yours. My car is yours. My job is yours. Everything that I am, Lord, belongs to You. What do You want to do with me? That's what being a living sacrifice means. That your life does not belong to you. You have offered it on an altar before God. And you have said, you may do with me whatever you wish. And that is the kind of sacrifice that God regards as holy and acceptable. And one more thing, please note this. When Paul says, I urge you, he is not suggesting He's not suggesting. He is talking about the central requirement of the Christian life. That in light of all that God has done for us, that we also ought to live for the honor and glory of God. Because this is our spiritual worship. You know, I know sometimes when you go to church and you go to the service... You know, people will will say sometimes, um, you know, when we're about to sing, okay, now let's worship the Lord together, right? And there's nothing really wrong with that. But that's not the only time that we're worshiping God, amen? We worship God when we pray. We worship God when we read Scripture. We worship God when we memorize His Word. We worship God when we listen to the Word preached when we obey what the Scripture says, we worship God as we get up and we go to our job. If we say at the beginning of the day, Lord, here I go again in the job that you have given me and the task that you have called me to fulfill, help me to honor you in what I do today when I go to OSF or I go to Caterpillar or I go to the school district or I go to the auto repair shop or I go to the welding place that I work at or wherever it is that I go, Father, help me to honor You in what I'm about to do. That is worship too. Amen? Because our whole life is meant to be a sacrifice to God and is our spiritual worship. We don't just do it with our lips and our voice on Sunday morning. We do it with our Life, our body, and our mind, and our spirit, 24-7, 365. That's what he's talking about when he says, present your body, present your life as a sacrifice. A living sacrifice to God. Because that's your spiritual worship. And so we're called to offer our whole selves to Christ that we might live a God-honoring life. What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because verse 2 tells us, all right? He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect If we're going to devote our lives to Christ, then we're going to have to submit ourselves to the full demands of that devotion. And that involves fleeing from one kind of change and pursuing another. And the change that we're to avoid is right there at the beginning of the verse, which is conforming to the world. The non-Christian world is one of the three enemies of the Christian. They are the world... Your own flesh, your own sinful nature that lives within you, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies that we have according to the Bible. And listen carefully, I don't mean that non-Christian people, non-Christian people are not your enemy. Non-Christian people are the victims of the enemy. That's very important for you to know, okay? We're to be in relationship with non-Christian people that we might bring them to faith in Jesus and they might be set free from sin and death. Amen? So non-Christian people are not our enemy. But the fact is, according to the Scripture, the devil rules over this world and all of the ideologies and worldviews and philosophies and legal systems and political parties and all the things that that non-Christians bring their sinful rebellion against God into are under Satan's sway. All of them. Now, can Christians be salt and light in the world? Yes. In fact, we are called to. But let's not kid ourselves. The reality is, is that the world is opposed to you if you are a believer. And you and I are not to fit into it. We are to stand out and stick up. We are to be different from the world. And I don't mean different in terms of being odd. I mean better. Morally, spiritually, better than everybody else. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, National Geographic where they have the salmon migration, right? The salmon migration, they all swim upstream, and it looks really cool, Right? you're watching them swim upstream and they're jumping. And sometimes a grizzly bear grabs one while they're jumping and all that, right? And they, they, you watch, But you watch that and you go, oh, that's so cool. And then you see up at the top of the headwaters where the, the breeding happens and they, the, the fish uh, all mate and they lay their eggs and the eggs get fertilized and the, the salmon all turn bright red and it's so cool, right? And I want to go to Alaska someday and, and see this, actually. And then what happens? After the breeding happens, they all die, right? And then what happens? Well, the bears really feast, but also all the carcasses just like float downstream, right? And there aren't any swimming upstream anymore because they're all what? Dead, right? And you and I live in a world where all of the dead fish are floating downstream, okay? And you and I are called to swim upstream, The opposite direction of the current, in other words. That we don't conform to the way that everybody else lives life. We don't watch the things that everybody else watches. We don't conduct our marriages the way everybody else conducts their marriages. We don't raise our kids the way everybody else raises their kids. We don't spend our money the same way everybody else spends their money. We don't conduct our sex life the way everybody else conducts theirs. We live in holiness and honor before the Lord, and it causes us to stand out in the same way that if you light one candle in a completely dark room, it is obvious that it is lit. We are to stand out. We're not to conform like everybody else. We're not to speak and think and act just like non-Christians. But there is tremendous pressure that is brought to bear on us. And the world wants to squeeze you into its mold. And to make you fit. There's an old Greek myth about, a, about a, a giant. His name was Procrustes. And anybody... That, uh, that came across this particular evil figure, he had a bed that he made them sleep in. And uh, he would capture them and make them fit in his bed. And so the bed was, if they were too tall for it, he would chop off portions of their body until they fit the length. And if they were too short, he would stretch them out until they fit. Right? He was an evil dude. Well, in a sense, that's what the world is trying to do to you and me. Is to make us fit. Something we're not designed to be in. We are to be different. We're not to conform. And you cannot be afraid, men and women, of being regarded as weird. Because you follow Jesus. I remember when I was in high school, you know, the, the worst thing in the world, the worst thing I could think of was to be thought of as weird by all of my friends, right? I did not want to be the one who everybody else thought was strange, right? I wanted to be cool. I wanted to have everybody like me. I didn't want to be mocked. I didn't want to be made fun of. But here's the deal. When you follow Jesus, the likelihood is those things are going to happen. Jesus Himself said, do not, be, do not be surprised if the world hates you. The world hated me first. Right? We are not living our lives on home court. Our home is not Here. And so we are going to be odd if we're going to follow Jesus. And that's okay. That's not a bug, that's a feature. That's part of what we're called to do, is not to be conformed. We are called to another kind of change, to transformation that comes through the renewing of your mind. Now, uh, let me point something out here. Um, Both of the words that are translated conformed and the word transformed are Greek passive imperatives. Okay, now, not to get all grammarian on you, okay, but what that means is this is that someone outside of you is doing the action to you. Okay, so in the first one, conforming, the world is trying actively to conform you to fit you onto its procrustean bed. To make you fit into its mold. But in the other kind, who is the person who is doing the transformation if it's not you? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. And the verb is also a present tense which indicates to us given the given Greek grammar that this is a continual an ongoing process of transformation it's not um, you know sometimes I think that that we think that the Christian life is like some kind of a magical thing where it's just like bam and all of a sudden you're transformed one day, but you're not it's gradual it takes place over time and it ta- and there's a growth process and a and a, stre- and, a, and a stretching and a, and, and a work of the Holy Spirit that takes place not all at once, but a little bit each day as you follow Jesus. We allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and we're gradually transformed. So here's how that change happens, okay? On the one hand, we answer the call to commitment with a no to the pressures of the present evil age. And with an ongoing yes to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you have to do both. You can't say, I'm going to say yes to the Holy Spirit and yes to the, Lord, yes to the world. Right? That will not work. As Elijah the prophet said to the people of Israel on Mount Carmel, he says, How long will you waver between opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. And if Yahweh is God, serve him. But you can't have both. You can't fit into the world and, and listen to the Holy Spirit at the same time. One is going to win. And you're going to have to say no to the world and yes to the Spirit if you're going to live the Christian life. You're going to have to do both. Now let me be clear here. How does the transformation that we see described actually take place? Well, to begin with, it is the Holy Spirit within you who brings about the transformation. And in order for that transformation to happen, in other words, uh, you, the mercies of God that Paul has been describing and that he is appealing to us to obey God on the basis of have to actually be something that you have received. I know that seems obvious, but, but let me be really obvious here for a second. If, if you want to obey God and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can't do it because you do not have the Holy Spirit who is working within you to bring about the transformation that we are called to enact and to receive. So you have to have the Holy Spirit within you. If you haven't received the mercies of God through faith in Christ, the transformation will not happen, but conforming to the world will. But if the Spirit is within you, then what He does as He lives within you is enables you to resist the world on the one hand and to say yes to His transformation on the other. And let me also say this too. How do we know that we're getting the leading of the Spirit? How do we know? How do we learn to recognize His voice? By taking in the Word. Because who is the author of the Scripture? Holy Spirit all scripture is is god breathe is spirit inspired and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness that the man of god might be thoroughly equipped for every good deed right it com- this this is the holy spirit talking to you Sometimes people go, "Well, I wish God would speak to me." Guess what? He already did. In pages and pages and pages, He speaks to you by His Holy Spirit, and you learn to recognize the Spirit's leading as you take into the, as you take in the Word and as you act on it you begin to experience transformation from the inside out see the way a relationship with God works is like this when you pray these are the basics of the Christian life when you pray you talk to God and you tell him what is going on in your life amen and you don't pray, you know, I used to think I needed to be more spiritual when I prayed, you know, so I got I to gotta pray for every time I pray. I need to pray for every missionary that I've ever known. I need to pray for my pastor. I need to pray for, you know, all the people in my church. And then I can finally get around to the stuff that is actually on my heart, right? And I'd be trying to pray, and I'd, you know, be engaged in it for a while, and then I'd have all this stuff kind of going through my brain, like, you know, what about this thing going on with the kids, or what about this, or you know what about that? And I wouldn't pray about that stuff because I'd be like, i got to pray about this other stuff, right? And, I, and then I finally had somebody tell me, well, that's dumb. Why don't you pray about the stuff that is actually bothering you and then pray about those other things? Those are important too. But why don't you pray and talk to God about the stuff that is actually on your mind? That as it's coming into your mind, pray about that. But anyway, you pray and you talk to God, right? And then you read the Word. You listen to the Word preached. You study. You take uh, a Sunday school class or uh, you go to BSF or a women's Bible study or some other method of taking in God's Word and God, guess what? Talks to you, right? And it's a beautiful thing. And you learn to recognize the Spirit's voice. And you experience transformation and renewing in your mind so that you don't think the way you used to think. And because you don't think the way you used to think, you don't act the way you used to act and talk the way you used to talk. And verse 2 ends by telling us what will happen if the Holy Spirit transforms us that we will be able to discern God's will. Now understand very carefully here, God speaks to us over and over and over again in His Word, and He gives us these imperatives, things to do. And there are myriad situations in the Bible in which God says, this is my will for you, do this, right? But there are lots of other situations that we encounter in life that we do not have a scripture we can point to and say, should I do this, Lord, or not? And I can't turn you to, you know, uh, Isaiah 62, uh, verse 5, and go, oh, this is what God says about that, right? I can't do that. And you can't do that either. There are all kinds of situations in life in which we don't know what God's will is. And it's a right and a left decision, not a right and a wrong decision. So how do we know what God's will is? Well, Paul tells us here that we will be able to discern what God's will is as our minds are renewed by His Holy Spirit as you rely on the Holy Spirit, as your mind is transformed by God's Word coming in and the Spirit's indwelling coming out through you, then you will be able to discern what is pleasing to God in that moment. What do I do right now as I'm living life? How do I know what God's will is? Well, as my mind is renewed, then I know. And I can act with confidence. And that is a beautiful promise, I think, for us. All right. Well, sometime in the next few weeks, all of us in my family are going to gather in my living room. And we're going to probably build a fire in the fireplace. We're going to cuddle up in blankets and all this. And we're going to watch White Christmas together. We love that movie. We do. We watch it every year at Christmas. I think it's Nathan's favorite movie, uh, at least uh, Christmas movies anyway. And you remember the movie opens with uh, Ben Crosby and Danny Kay, and they're playing two soldiers that are given a like a USO type show uh, on the night before the changing of the commanding officer. General Waverly is going to uh, going back to Washington, and they're getting a new general. And so they're doing a show for all the soldiers, and and right in the middle of the show, there's an artillery barrage, and there's stuff starting to fall down around them, and Danny Kay rushes in and grabs Bing Crosby and saves his life, right? And then later, Bing goes by to, to see him and, at the infirmary, and... Uh, and he says, you know, Danny says, you know, you were a big entertainer back in the U.S., back before the war. And he's like, yeah. He goes, uh, you know, I, I sing and dance a little bit. Uh, we should get an act together after this is over. And Bing says, oh, I don't know. I usually work alone. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I did I did save your life. And I, I got injured in the attempt and saving your life. And, you know, you really ought to reconsider. So he reconsiders and and. The characters are named Wallace, Bob Wallace, and, um, and, and Wallace and Davis. And they become this big thing, right? And then later in the movie, Wallace and Davis, through a very complicated set of circumstances involving Rosemary Clooney and Vera Allen, wind up in this bed and breakfast that happens to be owned by the old general, General Waverly. And there's no snow. And the, the inn is going bankrupt. Right uh, But they get all of the 151st Division to show up at the hotel and saves the old man's inn, and uh, it's a great ending to a movie, right? Why do they do that? Because they wanted to honor the man who had laid down his life for them. And all these guys show up to pay honor to the man that they had had given His life for them, and so they're living their lives for Him. One day, we're all going to gather too. You know what? We are. All of us who have followed Jesus throughout our lives are going to all be gathered too. And our commanding officer will have inspection. And he will inspect every one of our lives. And unlike in White Christmas, Jesus doesn't need our help. Amen? But the fact is he does receive our lives as a gift of honor an act of holy and acceptable worship as they offer as they're offered to him. So let me ask you if you crack your life open right now what is at the center of it? Or more importantly, who is at the center of it? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Now, when I was in the eighth grade, I got involved in, in um, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, their high school ministry called Student Venture. And they used to have in the little booklet they would give out, a little tract that you'd share the gospel with people with called the Four Spiritual Laws. They'd have diagrams. And they had two thrones, a little circle. And one had you on the throne, they the other had Jesus on the throne. And as you talk to somebody and share the gospel with them, you'd say, now which one represents your life? Are you on the throne or is Jesus on the throne? Let me ask you. When you look at your life, who's on the throne? You or Jesus. Whereas the bumper sticker used to say, you know, somebody would say, Jesus is my co-pilot on the bumper sticker, right? heard a pastor friend say, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. <laughs> right? That's true, right? He's the pilot. You're the passenger <laughs> on this thing, right? Have you decided to present your entire life to God as an act of worship? If not, what are you waiting on? Your commanding officer has made his call, and half hearted obedience will not do. So, how do you answer the call? Number one, present yourself as a sacrifice. Turn your life, your body, your mind, your soul over to God and say to Him without conditions, all that I have and all that I am is yours and you may do with me whatever you choose. And number two, do not be conformed to the ways of this world. You cannot straddle the fence between holiness and sin. You cannot uh, waver between Baal and Jesus. Either Jesus will be Lord of your life or someone else will be Lord of your life, but you cannot have more than one Lord. You've got to decide which it's going to be. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yield to the Holy Spirit within and obey the Spirit's word as it's coming in to your heart. Amen? Sounds real simple, I know. It's not easy to obey these things. I know that too. But that's the call that we have. The call to commitment. The call to Resistance, the call to obedience and transformation. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would receive our lives as a living sacrifice. That we might lay ourselves on the altar before You and say, here's my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee, as the hymn writer said. Father, we pray that we would honor You with our lips, with our life, with our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.